One, two, three, vamos! Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, and I'm joined today with my co-host. Laura Vanessi. I'm a proud Red Cloak as well. Great. And today we're excited to get to meet Simon Cataldo. And also uh, joining us is Kate Cavanaugh. Hi, Simon. Hi, Jesse. So great to be here. Kate, really great to see you. Now, Simon, you are running for office right now. Let's just share with people what you're running for. And then we've got big headline news to talk about. Jesse, thanks. I am running for state representative in the 14th Middlesex District, which includes Concord, Carlisle, and parts of Acton and Chelmsford. Fantastic. And Kate, you're a supporter of Simon as well as a uh, someone that I'm a longtime fan of as an organizer. Nice to see you. Delighted to be here. I'm also a proud Red Cloak. Starting with headline news today, the United States House of Representatives just took a great vote this morning and they passed the Women's Health Protection Act, which would codify a person's ability to access health care, including abortion, regardless of what state you live in. And I know this is something you've been following, Simon. Would love to hear your take on it. Thanks so much for that opportunity for opening in that way because it's so timely and so pressing. And also thanks to all of you, Laura, Kate, and Jesse, for the really important work that you're doing on the right to abortion, the constitutional right to abortion. So let's just start with whole women's health versus Jackson. That was a case in Texas, as I'm sure many or all of your listeners know, where the Supreme Court decided to leave standing a law that permits vigilantism against abortion providers six weeks or more after conception. The Supreme Court in that case denied preliminary relief against a law that is blatantly unconstitutional based on approximately 50 years of Supreme Court precedent. So what does that tell us? That tells us that those five people on the Supreme Court are not judges, they are activists. And they will contort the law in any way that serves their hard right activist cause. In elite law schools, they still teach that these so-called conservative justices claim to interpret the law, not create it, not true. We know from Bush v. Gore that they created out of thin air a right in the equal protection clause a clause that they pretended didn't exist before and after Bush v. Gore in order to make a Republican a pres the president. In Citizens United, they created out of thin air a right for corporations to spend unlimited money in elections, citing the First Amendment, which says no such thing. So the question is, where is this going? I believe, I know I'm not the only one, who believes that they are going to, to try to create a right for the unborn. And that is why, why we need to be so vigilant, including in blue states like Massachusetts, to codify, protect, and actualize the right of a woman to choose. Um, so this is, and we did that with the Roe Act. We expanded that with the Roe Act. Uh, thank you to all of you who are on this call for your work on that. Um, I believe that we have a lot left to do on reproductive justice in Massachusetts, not just federally. Um, the right to abortion has to not just be academic, it has to actually be practical too. And that means affordable. So there is pending legislation in Massachusetts that would ensure access to full spectrum pregnancy care. We need to be working to pass that bill, H1196, 
and others like it. I mention all of this partly because as I talk to Democrats in our district, I often hear Massachusetts is a blue state, they say. And so really we should just be focusing on federal issues. And I want to be empathetic and listening, but also forcefully saying no. We have so much to do here in Massachusetts, not just because our laws are not yet progressive enough, but because Massachusetts from the founding of our country has often been the tip of the spear on really important federal issues from abolition to the Affordable Health uh, Care Act. And it needs to be that for abortion rights and it needs to be that for climate change. It needs to be that in a bunch of different areas. Going back to one of your earlier comments about the Supreme Court, it, it made me, I don't know, kind of laugh, it's kind of sick, but Amy Coney Barrett last week said, oh, she's concerned that people are, are thinking that the Supreme Court is partisan. And I just thought like, that's just, it's just laughable. I mean, it, it is partisan. And when you tie that into what's happening in Massachusetts, there's been a lot of um, discussion that in Massachusetts, if we codify the right to abortion, then we'll be safe. But you also touched on the fact that it's very likely in the case that's gonna be heard in Dobbs, that they could easily recognize the right to fetal personhood. And if they recognize the right to fetal personhood, my understanding is that it doesn't mean that if your state codifies laws that you will necessarily be safe. So I'd love you to just unpack a little bit about how you see in this particular issue, what would your job be like if elected, if the Supreme Court passes something at the, you know, the federal level that means that Massachusetts laws don't hold? You know, what will be your kind of role and responsibility if elected? I want to just take that one step back because and make sure that everyone is on the same page about how the conservative justices have approached this is issue to this point. So the conservative justices have been saying that there is no such thing as substantive due process in the constitution as it concerns the right to an abortion. And so the federal uh, constitution does not give women a right to choose and the states can do whatever they want. But I think what we're seeing and what you're describing is going to potentially happen in the future is that these justices are going to say, actually, remember how we were saying it was a state rights issue? Never mind that. We're going to now say that there is a federal right. It just happens to belong to unborn children. And so I think what we can do to make it much, much harder for them to intercede is to make sure that we have really strong state rights, uh, which will give us a better litigating position. And also that we, as I said before, actualize, make practical the right to abortion so that it becomes more ingrained in our healthcare system. I think that that will provide us with a better record when it comes to needing to litigate this issue in the federal courts. And I think that we can provide models for the rest of the country, the other states that believe in a woman's right to choose and believe in the constitutional right to abortion. I think that we can help them shepherd along those policies as well. That's where I see the role of the state legislature. And I think that it is helpful to have people in that position who will be able to be thoughtful about what's coming down 
the pike and crafting laws in such a way that give us the most protection possible. It's really helpful. And I'm sure you're informed because in fact, you have a legally trained mind and your work as a prosecutor has probably helped you think through right now. I think the blue team, the Democrats are still always a step or two behind Republicans. Republicans are tightly organized from the local level, the school board, anti-mask behavior that is all over social media, all the way up to the Senate. Um, they're so organized. So it does seem like when I'm going to vote for someone, and I'm not in your district, but when I'm going to vote for someone to represent me in this state, I need to be thinking about how am I going to help build the blue team from local to national office? How has your work as a lawyer informed the way you would approach serving in an elected role? I came into being a lawyer in a fairly unique way. I went to law school at the University of Virginia. I clerked for an Obama appointee on the First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, federally, which includes Massachusetts and a few other states. And then I was one of two young lawyers who was drafted into the public integrity section at the Department of Justice. That section was created after Watergate to be a fairly independent part of the Justice Department and exclusively prosecute public corruption. So at a very young age, uh, for a lawyer, I was assigned some of the most high profile public corruption cases that we had in the country, often politically sensitive cases. My very first one was the prosecution of Sheriff Joe Arpaio, a sheriff in Arizona who we charged in the waning days of the Obama administration with detaining people based solely on their suspected Mexican heritage and turning them over to ICE for deportation. And we prosecuted him for criminal contempt. And then Trump was elected. And he didn't pardon him right away. The case went all the way to trial and we won. He was found guilty. And then Trump made Arpaio his first presidential pardon. Getting back to your question, I think I learned a lot of humility taking on those cases because you need to, as a young lawyer, understand, first of all, that you don't know everything, whether it's doctrine, whether it's the practicalities of trying a case, whether it's dealing with a witness or a victim, and you need to come in as a listener first. One of the very first things that I experienced in my grand jury practice was the challenge of making sure that I was really closely listening to every single thing that the witness said so that I could loop back on their answers, either to clean something up that might've been confusing for the grand jury or to hone in on a really advantageous point for my case. So I think that even though most people think of lawyers, particularly trial lawyers as talkers, the most important skill that I learned was being a listener and a listener with a sense of humility in many of the cases, I would get up there in front of the judge and the opposing counsel, the defense attorney would make some sort of comment about my age. Like, and this would be on the record too, mind you, something like he looks like he just got off the high school bus. So I would have to kind of swallow hard and then go after my points. And that's something that I would be prepared to do, uh, taking on some, what I think will be some pretty hard fights as a state representative, especially as a freshman. It's not gonna be easy to get things done. I'm gonna to need to really actively look for collaborators. I'm going to need to 
make sure I really understand why some of the priorities I'm hearing about in my district haven't been passed yet, and then thoughtfully go after those. Um, so I do think that my experience as a public corruption prosecutor on those cases will be helpful. Oh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your your just history of passions, you know, where you stand on various issues and, you know, you, you are very well spoken about women's issues. Where does, how does that hit you and, and why? My mom, Laura, was a social worker at Concord Family Services. Her job in particular was to, when she was there, was to find adoption placements for older children who were looking for a family. And I, admired her so much. Uh, she is, was such a strong person from just a young age. I viewed her as an incredibly powerful person and she had a huge impact on me as did my two sisters and as they continue to. And when I think about oppression of women in our society of which there is so much, I think about how all of us lose when women aren't elevated, aren't permitted, aren't uh, enabled to reach their full potential. And I think that that's not just a woman's issue, that's a human issue, it's a people's issue. It's a community issue when we don't have equity for all of us, including women. Another part of my life that informs my perspective in that regard, Laura, is my experience being an inner city special education teacher in Harlem and seeing the added difficulties that my female students had in that classroom, in that community, how so many of them struggled to find their voice because of the biases that they were experiencing, because of many of the challenges that they were facing. When I later um, founded Harlem Lacrosse, we first founded it with just boys because that was kind of what I knew. I, I had uh, lacrosse, is, there's boys lacrosse and girls lacrosse in case you're not familiar, there's different rules. I started with a boys team. It wasn't until a few years later that we brought into our board uh, somebody by the name of Chris Saylor, who is the head women's coach at Princeton. She is the winningest uh, coach in women's lacrosse uh, in history in the NCAA. And together with her, we founded the first girls program within Harlem lacrosse. Right away, those girls showed us that first of all, we were behind the eight ball because they were getting way more out of it than the boys were in many ways. In many inner city schools, both in Massachusetts and elsewhere, there are boys sports, but not girls sports. Girls make so much out of those opportunities. And so when I think about my role as a legislator, I think that my role as a legislator, as a human being, as a man, is to be really mindful about issues of equity and make sure that I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that everybody has the ability to reach their potential, including women. I'd just like to throw something in here. Uh, it's Kate speaking. Um, and all of us on this call are parents. 
And um, I remember when I was a young woman and found that I was going to have my first child and it was going to be a boy, I was just stunned because I'd always imagined raising girls. And my best friend said, well, Kate, this is our chance to raise the men we wish were around. <laughs> and um, I mentioned this because Simon is a dad to two boys, uh, three and a one-year-old, and he's married to a bright, bright woman who's also trained as a litigator as well. And what I see, and I see it often in terms of how he's co-parenting, is he is in there all the time. Um, so he really is that guy. Um, and actually last night I was talking with my kids and the two young women who were there, we were talking about Texas and they were incensed, but they ended up with the word saying they were sad. It's like, sad? Sad doesn't even begin to cover where we need to be. And as activists, we need to be a whole lot more than sad and dismayed about what's going on. And I'm so glad that Simon's putting himself in this position as a man and as an activist um, to make a difference. One thing we've definitely followed in different candidates is a concerted effort to try to bring greater diversity to the state house. I think it's good to talk about it openly because you are a white male person. And so, and uh, cisgendered, it sounds like, and in a, in a marriage with a woman and having kids. Because in the suburbs in Massachusetts, there are great advantages compared to some of our gateway cities. So we've talked to candidates you know, in Lawrence and when they talk about housing struggles, it's for thousands of units. And in some of the more affluent suburbs, you know, affordable housing adds a couple units here and there. So how do you sort of look at these inequities that we have and then your own position and your own privilege. Jesse, thanks for the question. Um, first, let me just say that as a white man, I will never fully appreciate the experience of being a woman or a person of color. So I think it's important to name that, acknowledge that, and understand that gap to the best that I can. What I can commit to is being a good listener um, and being a formidable ally here in the district and on Beacon Hill for the many groups that have been historically oppressed, overlooked, and disenfranchised and being a fighter because this is, this is a fight and, and we do need fighters to take on these issues that are so difficult. And that's what I've done throughout my life, whether it's been as an inner city special education teacher, the founder of Harlem Lacrosse, or a prosecutor of public officials like Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, I'm hopeful about our ability to make progress on issues of equity because I know that in the many conversations that I've had with people in this district, we can agree on certain things, including the need to address inequality in our schools, the need to increase the stock of affordable housing and the need to fortify our democracy by breaking down barriers on, to our electoral system. And I'm running to serve the people of this district and to bring my experiences on those issues to bear. Jesse, you mentioned affordable housing. That is something that I hear about again and again. And I think that when we have conversations about affordable housing, we need to start with racism because 
racism has been the root cause of many housing affordable issues, if not all affordable housing issues in our Commonwealth and in our district, whether it's the effects of desegregating our schools, whether it's redlining, whether it's um, exclusionary zoning policies, that has caused every has, has caused these issues. And it's racism is an undercurrent to our discussion of affordable housing. The other day I was speaking to somebody in the district who lives in an affordable housing development. And she was telling me how at a recent meeting, somebody said, well, I don't like the affordable housing complex because those people go to the mark to the market basket uh, instead of the other supermarket that's closer nearby and it's causing traffic problems. So we all know what that is, right? We know what that comment is. So before we get to the economic or the practical or the traffic issues, let's just name the race element to affordable housing. That of course doesn't fully help solve the problem because we need to talk about the solutions. And I think that number one thing we need to work on is increasing the stock and the quality and condition of our affordable housing units in the communities of Concord, Carlisle, Acton, and Chelmsford. There are a lot of ways we need to do that. We can do that. There are two levels on which this operates. And it goes back to your point earlier. One, we need people who can make the case to this community that that's something that we should do and that we need to do. If our legislators, if our reps, if our leaders aren't making the case to this community effectively, then it's not going to happen. So I do think that I'm somebody who can do that and has done that through Harlem Lacrosse's interactions with the towns of Concord and Carlisle, uh, largely white families, uh, not necessarily allies to causes of inner city uh, education uh, from their own life experience, but they've signed on to that uh, in part because with others, I've worked to get them to believe in that cause. And that's, that is a experience and skill set that I'd seek to apply to other issues like affordable housing. Um, we also need people who are going to drill down on the details to make sure that affordable housing is workable for our communities. And we don't get out ahead of our skis by causing backlash that's going to make a long-term detriment to the cause of affordable housing. So one of the uh, solutions that I've seen proposed that has not yet been passed is to increase the deeds excise tax in Massachusetts to bring it closer to what other states have by about 2% and then use those funds to create affordable housing stock and also climate resiliency. That's a bill that's proposed by the HERO Coalition and it's um, being advanced by Jamie Eldridge and Nika Eligardo. Those are the types of solutions that I think we need to be pursuing when it comes to affordable housing. We would love to have you back to talk more about climate change. And I would love to come back and talk about climate change because one thing we haven't discussed yet is I'm an environmentalist who is trained in environmental science, uh, trained in the thermodynamics of residential energy and alternative fuels. And 
this is something that I have a lot of thoughts on, something that I think that we really need to be pursuing vigilantly as we seek to achieve our climate goals. But I, I would love to talk to you more, Simon, about the, the women's bills that are um, on the floor right now, too, because there are a bunch of them. So thank you for coming. I really appreciate hearing all of this. And I'd love to um, hear more about where listeners can go to get more information about you and, and maybe even help. Laura, thank you. The best place is simoncataldo.com. S-I-M-O-N-C-A-T-A-L-D-O.com. Thank you. And Kate, thanks so much for being here today too. And Simon, really great to meet you. We will definitely look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com 